0: CHAPTER V. PART I OF THE LOST GIRL BY D. H. LAWRENCE This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE BOW Throttle-Hapney worked fitfully through the winter, and in the spring broke down. By this time James Houghton had a pathetic, childish look which touched the hearts of Alvina and Miss Pinnegar, they began to treat him with a certain feminine indulgence as he fluttered round, agitated, and bewildered. He was like a bird that has flown into a room and is exhausted, enfeebled by its attempts to fly through the false freedom of the window-glass. Sometimes he would sit moping in a corner, with his head under his wing. But Miss Pinnegar chased him forth like the stealthy cat she was, chased him up to the workroom to consider some detail of work, chased him into the shop to turn over the old debris of the stock. At one time he showed the alarming symptom of brooding over his wife's death. Miss Pinnegar was thoroughly scared, but she was not inventive. It was left to Alvina to suggest, Why doesn't father let the shop, and some of the house? Let the shop? Let the last inch of frontage on the street? James thought of it. Let the shop? Permit the name of Houghton to disappear from the list of tradesmen, withdraw, disappear, become a nameless nobody, occupying obscure premises. He thought about it, and thinking about it, became so indignant at the thought that he pulled his scattered energies together within his frail frame, and then he came out with the most original of all his schemes— manchester house was to be fitted up as a boarding-house for the better classes and was to make a fortune catering for the needs of these gentry who had now nowhere to go yes manchester house should be fitted up as a sort of quiet family hotel for the better classes the shop should be turned into an elegant hall entrance carpeted with a hall porter, and a wide plate-glass door, round-arched, in the round arch of which the words Manchester House should appear large and distinguished, making an arch also, whilst underneath, more refined and smaller, should show the words Private Hotel. James was to be proprietor and secretary, keeping the books and attending to correspondence. Miss Pinnegar was to be manageress superintending the servants, and directing the house, whilst Alvina was to occupy the equivocal position of hostess. She was to shake hands with the guests, she was to play the piano, and she was to nurse the sick. For in the prospectus, James would include, trained nurse always on the premises. "'Why?' cried Miss Pinnegar, for once brutally and angrily hostile to him. "'You'll make it sound like a private lunatic asylum.' "'Will you explain why?' answered James tartly for himself he was enraptured with the scheme he began to tot up ideas and expenses there would be the handsome entrance and hall there would be an extension of the kitchen and scullery there would be an installing of new hot water and sanitary arrangements there would be a light lift arrangement from the kitchen there would be a handsome glazed balcony or loggia or terrace on the first floor at the back over the whole length of the backyard This loggia would give a a wonderful outlook to the south-west and the west. In the immediate foreground, to be sure, would be the yard of the livery-stables and the rather slummy dwellings of the colliers sloping downhill. But these could be easily overlooked, for the eye would instinctively wander across the green and shallow valley to the long up-slope opposite, showing the manor set in its clump of trees and farms and haystacks pleasantly dotted, and moderately far off coal-mines with twinkling headstocks and narrow railway lines crossing the arable fields and heaps of burning slag. The balcony, or covered terrace, James settled down at last to the word terrace, was to be one of the features of the house, the feature. It was to be fitted up as a sort of elegant lounging restaurant. Elegant teas at two and six per head and elegant suppers at five shillings without wine were to be served here. As a teetotaler and a man of ascetic views, James, in his first shallow moments before he thought about it, assumed that his house should be entirely non-alcoholic. A temperance house! Already he winced. We all know what a provincial temperance hotel is. Besides, there is magic in the sound of wine. Wine served! The legend attracted him immensely. As a teetotaler, it had a mysterious, hypnotic influence. He must have wines. He knew nothing about them, but Alfred Swain, from the liquor vaults, would put him in the running in five minutes. It was most curious to see Miss Pinnegar turtle up at the mention of this scheme. When first it was disclosed to her, her colour came up like a turkey's, in a flush of indignant anger. "'It's ridiculous! It's just ridiculous!' she blurted, bridling and ducking her head and turning aside like an indignant turkey. "'Ridiculous!' "'Why? Will you explain why?' retorted James, turtling also. "'It's absolutely ridiculous,' she repeated, unable to do more than splutter. "'Well, we'll see,' said James, rising to superiority. And again he began to dart absorbedly about, like a bird building a nest. Miss Pinnegar watched him with a sort of sullen fury. She went to the shop door to peep out after him. She saw him slip into the liquor vaults, "'and she came back to announce to Alvina, "'He's taken to drink.' "'Drink?' said Alvina. "'That's what it is,' said Miss Pinnegar vindictively. "'Drink!' Alvina sank down and laughed till she was weak. It all seemed really too funny to her, too funny. "'I can't see what it is to laugh at,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'Disgraceful! It's disgraceful! "'But I'm not going to stop to be made a fool of. "'I shall be no manageress, I tell you. "'It's absolutely ridiculous.' "'Who does he think will come to the place? "'He's out of his mind, and it's drink, that's what it is, "'going into the liquor vaults at ten o'clock in the morning. "'That's where he gets his ideas, out of whisky or brandy. "'But he's not going to make a fool of me.' "'Oh, dear!' sighed Alvina, laughing herself into composure and a little weariness. "'I know it's perfectly ridiculous. "'We shall have to stop him.' "'I've said all I can say,' blurted Miss Pinnegar. As soon as James came in to a meal, the two women attacked him. "'But, Father,' said Alvina, "'there'll be nobody to come.' "'Plenty of people.' "'Plenty of people,' said her father. "'Look at the Shakespeare's head in Narborough. Narborough, "'Is this Narborough?" bloated Miss Pinnegar. "'Where are the businessmen here? "'Where are the foreigners coming here for business? "'Where's our lace trade and our stocking trade?' "'There are businessmen,' said James, "'and there are ladies.' "'Who,' retorted Miss Pinnegar, "'is going to give half a crown for a tea? "'They expect tea and bread and butter for fourpence, and cake for sixpence, "'and apricots or pineapple for ninepence, and ham and tong for a shilling, "'and fried ham and eggs, and jam and cake, and as much as they can eat for one and two. "'If they expect a knife and fork tea for a shilling, "'what are you going to give them for half a crown?' "'I know what I shall offer,' said James, "'and we may make it two shillings.' Through his mind flitted the idea of one-and-eleven's-halfpenny, but he rejected it. "'You don't realise that I'm catering for a higher class of custom—' "'But there isn't any higher class in Woodhouse, father,' said Alvina, unable to restrain a laugh. "'If you create a supply, you create a demand,' he retorted. "'But how can you create a supply of better-class people?' asked Alvina mockingly. James took on his refined, abstracted look, as if he were preoccupied on higher planes. It was the look of an obstinate little boy who poses on the side of the angels, or so the women saw it. Miss Pinnegar was prepared to combat him now by sheer weight of opposition. She would pitch her dead negative will obstinately against him. She would not speak to him. She would not observe his presence. She was stone-deaf and stone-blind— There was no James. This nettled him, and she miscalculated him. He merely took another circuit, and rose another flight higher on the spiral of his spiritual egotism. He believed himself finely and sacredly in the right, that he was frustrated by lower beings, above whom it was his duty to rise, to soar. So he soared to serene heights, and his private hotel seemed a celestial injunction an erection on a higher plane. He saw the architect, and then, with his plans and schemes, he saw the builder and contractor. The builder gave an estimate of six or seven hundred, but James had better see the plumber and fitter, who was going to install the new hot water and sanitary system. James was a little dashed. He had calculated much less, having only a few hundred pounds in possession after throttle ha'penny he was prepared to mortgage Manchester House if he could keep in hand a sufficient sum of money for the running of his establishment for a year he knew he would have to sacrifice Miss Pinnegar's workroom he knew and he feared Miss Pinnegar's violent and unmitigated hostility still his obstinate spirit rose he was quite prepared to risk everything on this last throw Miss Allsop daughter of the builder, called to see Alvina. The Olsops were great chapel people, and Cassie Olsop was one of the old maids. She was thin and nipped and wistful-looking, about forty-two years old. In private she was tyrannously exacting with the servants, and spiteful, rather mean with her motherless nieces, but in public she had this nipped, wistful look. Alvina was surprised by this visit, when she found Miss Olsop at the back door, all her inherent hostility awoke. "'Oh, is it you, Miss Olsop? Will you come in?' They sat in the middle room, the common living-room of the house. "'I called,' said Miss Olsop, coming to the point at once, and speaking in her Sunday-school teacher voice, "'to ask you if you know about this private hotel scheme of your father's?' "'Yes,' said Alvina. "'Oh, you do? Well, we wondered—' "'Mr. Houghton came to father about the building alterations yesterday. "'They'll be awfully expensive.' "'Will they?' said Alvina, making big, mocking eyes. "'Yes, very. What do you think of the scheme?' "'I—well!' Alvina hesitated, then broke into a laugh. "'To tell the truth, I haven't thought much about it at all.' "'Well, I think you should,' said Miss Olsop, severely father's sure it won't pay and it will cost i don't know how much it is bound to be a dead loss and your father's getting on you'll be left stranded in the world without a penny to bless yourself with i think it's an awful outlook for you do you said alvina here she was with a bang planked upon the shelf among the old maids oh i do sincerely i should do all i could to prevent him if i were you Miss Allsop took her departure. Alvina felt herself jolted in her mood. An old maid, along with Cassie Allsop, and James Houghton fooling about with the last bit of money, mortgaging Manchester House up to the hilt. Alvina sank in a kind of weary mortification, in which her peculiar obstinacy persisted devilishly and spitefully. Oh, well, so be it, said her spirit vindictively. Let the meagre, mean, despicable fate fulfill itself. Her old anger against her father arose again. Arthur Whittam, the plumber, came in with James Houghton to examine the house. Arthur Whittam was also one of the chapel men, as had been his common, interfering, uneducated father before him. The father had left each of his sons a fair little sum of money, which Arthur, the eldest, had already increased tenfold. He was sly and slow and uneducated also, and spoke with a broad accent, but he was not bad-looking, a tight fellow with big blue eyes, who aspired to keep his H's in the right place, and would have been a gentleman if he could. Against her usual habit, Alvina joined the plumber and her father in the scullery. Arthur Whitham saluted her with some respect. She liked his blue eyes and tight figure. He was keen and sly in business, very watchful and slow to commit himself. Now he poked and peered and crept under the sink. Alvina watched him half disappear. She handed him a candle, and she laughed to herself, seeing his tight, well-shaped hand protruding from under the sink like the wrong end of a dog from a kennel. He was keen after money, was Arthur, and bossy, creeping slyly after his own self-importance and power. He wanted power and he would creep quietly after it till he got it, as much as he was capable of. His H's were a barbed-wire fence and entanglement, preventing his unlimited progress. He emerged from under the sink, and they went to the kitchen and afterwards upstairs. Alvina followed them persistently, but a little aloof and silent. When the tour of inspection was over, she said, innocently, "'Won't it cost a great deal?' Arthur Whittam slowly shook his head. Then he looked at her. She smiled rather archly into his eyes. "'It won't be done for nothing,' he said, looking at her again. "'We can go into that later,' said James, leading off the plumber. "'Good morning, Miss Houghton,' said Arthur Whittam. "'Good morning, Mr. Whittam,' replied Alvina, brightly. But she lingered in the background, and as Arthur Whittam was going she heard him say, "'Well, I'll work it out, Mr. Houghton, I'll work it out, and let you know to-night. I'll get the figures by to-night.' The younger man's tone was a little off-hand, just a little supercilious with her father, she thought. James's star was setting. In the afternoon, directly after dinner, Alvina went out. She entered the shop, where sheets of lead and tins of paint and putty stood about, varied by sheets of glass and fancy paper. Lottie Whittam, Arthur's wife, appeared. She was a woman of thirty-five, a bit of a shrew, with social ambitions and no children. "'Is Mr. Whittam in?' said Alvina. Mrs. Whittam eyed her. "'I'll see,' she answered, and she left the shop. Presently Arthur entered, in his shirt-sleeves, rather attractive-looking. "'I don't know what you'll think of me, and what I've come for,' said Alvina, with hurried amiability. Arthur lifted his blue eyes to her, and Mrs. Whittam appeared in the background, in the inner doorway. "'Why, what is it?' said Arthur, stolidly. Make it as dear as you can, for father, said Alvina, laughing nervously. Arthur's blue eyes rested on her face. Mrs. Whittam advanced into the shop. Why, what's that for? asked Lottie Whittam shrewdly. Alvina turned to the woman. Don't say anything, she said, but we don't want father to go on with this scheme. It's bound to fail, and Miss Pinnegar and I can't have anything to do with it anyway. I shall go away. "'It's bound to fail,' said Arthur Whittam, stolidly. "'And father has no money, I am sure,' said Alvina. Lottie Whittam eyed the thin, nervous face of Alvina. For some reason she liked her. And, of course, Alvina was considered a lady in Woodhouse. That was what it had come to. With James's declining fortunes she was merely considered a lady. The consideration was no longer indisputable. "'Shall you come in a minute?' said Lottie Whittam. "'lifting the flap of the counter. "'It was a rare and bold stroke on Mrs. Whittam's part. "'Alvina's immediate instinct was to refuse, "'but she liked Arthur Whittam in his shirt-sleeves. "'Well, I must be back in a minute,' she said, "'as she entered the embrasure of the counter. "'She felt as if she were really venturing on new ground. "'She was led into the new drawing-room, "'done in peacock and bronze brocade furniture, "'with gilt and brass and white walls.' This was the Whittam's new house, and Lottie was proud of it. The two women had a short, confidential chat. Arthur lingered in the doorway a while, then went away. Alvina did not really like Lottie Whittam, yet the other woman was sharp and shrewd in the uptake, and for some reason she fancied Alvina, so she was invited to tea at Manchester House. After this, so many difficulties rose up in James Houghton's way that he was worried almost out of his life. His two women left him alone. Outside difficulties multiplied on him till he abandoned his scheme. He was simply driven out of it by untoward circumstances. Lottie Whittam came to tea and was shown over Manchester House. She had no opinion at all of Manchester House, wouldn't hang a cat in such a gloomy hole. Still, she was rather impressed by the sense of superiority. "'Oh, my goodness!' she exclaimed as she stood in Alvina's bedroom, and looked at the enormous furniture, the lofty table-land of the bed. "'Oh, my goodness! I wouldn't sleep in that for a trifle by myself. Aren't you frightened out of your life? Even if I had Arthur at one side of me, I should be frightened on the other side. I shouldn't know what to do. Do you sleep here by yourself?' "'Yes,' said Alvina, laughing. "'I haven't got an Arthur, even for one side.' "'Oh, my word, you'd want a husband on both sides in that bed,' said Lottie Whitam. Alvina was asked back to tea on Wednesday afternoon, closing day. Arthur was there to tea, very ill at ease and feeling as if his hands were swollen. Alvina got on better with his wife, who watched closely to learn from her guest the secret of repose, the indefinable repose and inevitability of a lady, even of a lady who is nervous and agitated, this was the problem which occupied Lottie's shrewd and active but lower-class mind. She even did not resent Alvina's laughing attempts to draw out the clumsy Arthur, because Alvina was a lady, and her tactics must be studied. Alvina really liked Arthur, and thought a good deal about him. Heaven knows why. He and Lottie were quite happy together, and he was absorbed in his petty ambitions. In his limited way he was invincibly ambitious, He would end by making a sufficient fortune, and by being a town councillor and a J.P., but beyond Woodhouse he did not exist. Why, then, should Alvina be attracted by him? Perhaps because of his closeness and his secret determinedness. When she met him in the street she would stop him, though he was always busy, and make him exchange a few words with her, and when she had tea at his house she would try to rouse his attention. But though he looked at her steadily with his blue eyes from under his long lashes still she knew he looked at her objectively he never conceived any connection with her whatsoever it was lotty who had a scheming mind in the family of three brothers there was one not black sheep but white there was one who was climbing out to be a gentleman this was albert the second brother he had been a school teacher in woodhouse had gone out to south africa and occupied a post in a sort of grammar school in one of the cities of Cape Colony. He had accumulated some money to add to his patrimony. Now he was in England, at Oxford, where he would take his belated degree. When he had got his degree, he would return to South Africa to become head of his school, at seven hundred a year. Albert was thirty-two years old and unmarried. Lottie was determined he should take back to the Cape a suitable wife, presumably Alvina. He spent his vacations in Woodhouse, and he was only in his first year at Oxford. Well now, what could be more suitable? A young man at Oxford, a young lady in Woodhouse. Lottie told Alvina all about him, and Alvina was quite excited to meet him. She imagined him a taller, more fascinating, educated Arthur. For the fear of being an old maid, the fear of her own virginity, was really gaining on Alvina. There was a terrible, sombre futility, nothingness, in Manchester House. She was twenty-six years old. Her life was utterly barren now Miss Frost had gone. She was shabby and penniless, a mere household drudge, for James begrudged even a girl to help in the kitchen. She was looking faded and worn. Panic, the terrible and deadly panic which overcomes so many unmarried women at about the age of thirty, was beginning to overcome her. She would not care about marriage, even if she had a lover, but some sort of terror haunted her to the search of a lover. She would become loose, she would become a prostitute, she said to herself, rather than die off like Cassie Olsop and the rest, wither slowly and ignominiously and hideously on the tree. She would rather kill herself, but it needs a certain natural gift to become a loose woman or a prostitute. If you haven't got the qualities which attract loose men, what are you to do? Supposing it isn't in your nature to attract loose and promiscuous men. Why, then, you can't be a prostitute, if you try your head off, nor even a loose woman. Since willing won't do it, it requires a second party to come to an agreement. Therefore, all Alvina's desperate and profligate schemes and ideas fell to naught before the inexorable in her nature and the inexorable in her nature was highly exclusive and selective—an inevitable negation of looseness or prostitution. Hence men were afraid of her, of her power, once they had committed themselves. She would involve and lead a man on, she would destroy him rather than not get of him what she wanted, and what she wanted was something serious and risky. Not mere marriage, oh dear no, but a profound and dangerous interrelationship as well ask the paddlers in the small surf of passion to plunge themselves into the heaving gulf of mid-ocean bah with their trousers turned up to their knees it was enough for them to wet their toes in the dangerous sea they were having nothing to do with such desperate nereids as alvina she had cast her mind on arthur truly ridiculous but there was something compact and energetic and wilful about him that she magnified tenfold and so obtained, imaginatively, an attractive lover. She brooded her days shabbily away in Manchester House, busy with housework drudgery. Since the collapse of throttle Hapney, James Houghton had become so stingy that it was like an inflammation in him. A silver sixpence had a pale and celestial radiance which he could not forego, a nebulous whiteness which made him feel he had heaven in his hold. How then could he let it go? even a brown penny seemed alive and pulsing with mysterious blood potent magical he loved the flock of his busy pennies in the shop as if they had been divine bees bringing him sustenance from the infinite but the pennies he saw dribbling away in household expenses troubled him acutely as if they were live things leaving his fold it was a constant struggle to get from him enough money for necessities and so the household diet became meagre in the extreme. The coal was eked out inch by inch, and when Alvina must have her boots mended, she must draw on her own little stock of money. For James Houghton had the impudence to make her an allowance of two shillings a week. She was very angry. Yet her anger was of that dangerous, half-ironical sort which wears away its subject and has no outward effect. A feeling of half-bitter mockery kept her going, In the ponderous, rather sordid nullity of Manchester House, she became shadowy and absorbed, absorbed in nothing in particular, yet absorbed. She was always more or less busy, and certainly there was always something to be done, whether she did it or not. The shop was opened once a week, on Friday evenings. James Houghton prowled round the warehouses in Narborough and picked up job-lots of stuff, with which he replenished his shabby window but his heart was not in the business. Mere tenacity made him hover on with it. In midsummer, Albert Whittam came to Woodhouse, and Alvina was invited to tea. She was very much excited. All the time imagining Albert a taller, finer Arthur, she had abstained from actually fixing her mind upon this latter little man. Picture her disappointment when she found Albert quite unattractive. He was tall and thin and brittle, with a pale, rather dry, flattish face, and with curious pale eyes. His impression was one of uncanny flatness, something like a lemon sole. Curiously flat and fish-like he was, one might have imagined his backbone to be spread like the backbone of a sole or a place. His teeth were sound, but rather large and yellowish and flat, a most curious person. He spoke in a slightly mouthing way, not well-bred in spite of Oxford. There was a distinct Woodhouse twang. He would never be a gentleman if he lived for ever. Yet he was not ordinary. Really an odd fish, quite interesting, if one could get over the feeling that one was looking at him through the glass wall of an aquarium, that most horrifying of all boundaries between two worlds. In an aquarium fish seemed to come smiling broadly to the doorway, and there to stand talking to one in a mouthing fashion, awful to behold, for one hears no sound from all their mouthing and staring conversation. Now although Albert Whittam had a good strong voice, which rang like water among rocks in her ear, still she seemed never to hear a word he was saying. He smiled down at her, and fixed her, and swayed his head, and said quite original things, really, for he was a genuine odd fish, and yet she seemed to hear no sound, no word from him, nothing came to her. Perhaps, as a matter of fact, fish do actually pronounce streams of watery words, to which we, with our aerial resonant ears, are deaf for ever. The odd thing was that this odd fish seemed from the very first to imagine she had accepted him as a follower, and he was quite prepared to follow. Nay, from the very first moment he was smiling on her with a sort of complacent delight, compassionate, one might almost say, as if there was a full understanding between them if only she could have got into the right state of mind she would really rather have liked him he smiled at her and said really interesting things between his big teeth there was something rather nice about him but we must repeat it was as if the glass wall of an aquarium divided them alvina looked at arthur arthur was short and dark-haired and nicely coloured but now his brother was there He, too, seemed to have a dumb, aqueous silence, fish-like and aloof about him. He seemed to swim like a fish in his own little element. Strange it all was, like Alice in Wonderland. Alvina understood now Lottie's strained sort of thinness, a haggard, sinewy, sea-weedy look. The poor thing was all the time swimming for her life. For Alvina it was a most curious tea-party. She listened and smiled and made vague answers to Albert, who leaned his broad, thin, brittle shoulders towards her. Lottie seemed rather shadowily to preside, but it was Arthur who came out into communication, and now, uttering his rather broad-mouthed speeches, she seemed to hear him in a quieter, subtler edition of his father. His father had been a little, terrifically loud-voice, hard-skinned man, amazingly uneducated, and amazingly bullying, who had tyrannized for many years over the Sunday-school children during morning service. He had been an odd-looking creature with round grey whiskers, to Alvina always a creature, never a man, an atrocious leprechaun from under the chapel floor, and how he used to dig the children in the back with his horrible iron thumb if the poor things happened to whisper or nod in chapel. These were his children— most curious chips of the old block. Who ever would have believed she would have been taking tea with them? "'Why don't you have a bicycle and go out on it?' Arthur was saying. "'But I can't ride,' said Alvina. "'You'd learn in a couple of lessons. There's nothing in riding a bicycle.' "'I don't believe I ever should,' laughed Alvina. "'You don't mean to say you're nervous?' said Arthur rudely and sneeringly. "'I am,' she persisted. "'You needn't be nervous with me,' smiled Albert, broadly, with his odd, genuine gallantry. "'I'll hold you on.' "'But I haven't got a bicycle,' said Alvina, feeling she was slowly colouring to a deep, uneasy blush. "'You can have mine to learn on,' said Lottie. "'Albert will look after it.' "'There's your chance,' said Arthur rudely. "'Take it while you've got it.' Now Alvina did not want to learn to ride a bicycle." The two Miss Carlins, two more old maids, had made themselves ridiculous for ever by becoming twin cycle fiends. And the horrible, energetic strain of peddling a bicycle over miles and miles of highway did not attract Alvina at all. She was completely indifferent to sightseeing and scouring about. She liked taking a walk in her lingering indifferent fashion, but rushing about in any way was hateful to her and then to be taught to ride a bicycle by Albert Whittam. Her very soul stood still. "'Yes,' said Albert, beaming down at her from his strange, pale eyes. "'Come on, when will you have your first lesson?' "'Oh!' cried Alvina in confusion. "'I can't promise. I haven't time, really.' "'Time!' exclaimed Arthur rudely. "'But what do you do with yourself all day?' "'I have to keep house,' she said, looking at him archly. "'House? You can put a chain round its neck and tie it up,' he retorted. Albert laughed, showing all his teeth. "'I'm sure you find plenty to do, with everything on your hands,' said Lottie to Alvina. "'I do,' said Alvina. "'By evening I'm quite tired, though you mayn't believe it, since you say I do nothing,' she added, laughing confusedly to Arthur. But he, hard-headed little fortune-maker, replied, "'You have a girl to help you, don't you?' "'Albert, however, was beaming at her sympathetically. "'You have too much to do indoors,' he said. "'It would do you good to get a bit of exercise out of doors. "'Come down to the coach-road to-morrow afternoon, "'and let me give you a lesson. "'Go on.' "'Now the coach-road was a level drive "'between beautiful, park-like grass stretches "'down in the valley. "'It was a delightful place for learning to ride a bicycle, "'but open, in full view of all the world. "'Alvina would have died of shame.' She began to laugh nervously and hurriedly at the very thought. "'No, I I can't. I really can't. Thanks awfully,' she said. "'Can't you really?' said Albert. "'Oh, well, we'll say another day, shall we?' "'When I feel I can,' she said. "'Yes, when you feel like it,' replied Albert. "'That's more it,' said Arthur. "'It's not the time. It's the nervousness.' Again Albert beamed at her sympathetically and said, "'Oh, I'll hold you. You needn't be afraid.' "'But I'm not afraid,' she said. "'You won't say you are,' interposed Arthur. "'Women's faults mustn't be owned up to.' Alvina was beginning to feel quite dazed. Their mechanical, overbearing way was something she was unaccustomed to. It was like the jaws of a pair of insentient iron pincers. She rose, saying she must go. Albert rose also, and reached for his straw hat with its coloured band. I'll stroll up with you if you don't mind, he said, and he took his place at her side along the Narborough Road, where everybody turned to look, for, of course, he had a sort of fame in Woodhouse. She went with him, laughing and chatting, but she did not feel at all comfortable. He seemed so pleased, only he was not pleased with her, he was pleased with himself on her account, inordinately pleased with himself. In his world, as in a fish's, there was but his own swimming self and if he chanced to have something swimming alongside and doing him credit why so much the more complacently he smiled he walked stiff and erect with his head pressed rather back so that he always seemed to be advancing from the head and shoulders in a flat kind of advance horizontal he did not seem to be walking with his whole body his manner was oddly gallant with a gallantry that completely missed the individual in the woman circled round her and flew home, gratified to his own hive. The way he raised his hat, the way he inclined and smiled flatly, even rather excitedly as he talked, was all a little discomforting and comical. He left her at the shop door, saying, "'I shall see you again, I hope.' "'Oh, yes,' she replied, rattling the door anxiously, for it was locked. She heard her father's step at last tripping down the shop good evening mr houghton said albert suavely and with a certain confidence as james peered out oh good evening said james letting alvina pass and shutting the door in albert's face who was that he asked her sharply albert witham she replied what has he got to do with you said james shrewishly nothing i hope End of chapter five part one Read by Tony Foster